Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, would you send your spirit to change our hearts, to inscribe upon us your stories and your statutes, to move us to a greater obedience, a greater adoration, a greater clarity about what matters in life. Father, would you steer us from paths that lead to death and lead us in the way of life everlasting. Jesus, you alone have the words of life. Father, you alone have the wisdom as our creator to know, to know how we are to be fully human. Not only individually, but together. So that every tongue, tribe, and people, and nation might live in peace. Might live in wisdom. Might live in hope. Father, Father would you bless the reading of your word this morning. Father, please be with me as I seek to explain it. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. <clears throat> this Christmas, are you uh, looking for something different to do with the family? Well, consider going to the banks of the Delaware River, where at 1 p.m. you can gather with thousands of others in the crisp Christmas air to witness what? Does anyone know? I'll give you a hint. It was on a crisp Christmas night in the year 1776. What's that? Washington's Crossing. That's right. That a certain general whose troops' morale was at an all-time low needed to cross the icy Delaware River. The general, of course, was a guy by the name of George Washington. The crossing was significant in that it led Washington and his troops to a much-needed victory. Supposedly, I'm no, I'm no historian here of, of American, uh, American Revolution by any chance, but he says, uh, supposedly, if Washington had failed, there was a good chance that the colonies actually would have lost the war. And then America as a nation would never have been born. Okay, I get it. But why a reenactment? I mean, come on. Isn't that just kind of cheesy? Isn't it kind of silly? I mean, what's the point? Or maybe if you're not an outside person at Christmas time, maybe you could do this instead. Maybe, maybe you could throw the kids in the car in the summertime and travel to Pennsylvania on the 4th of July, where you could witness over four days, over 5,000 actors, 200 horses, and 70 cannons reenact the most decisive yet most deadly battle in American history. What is it? The Gettysburg, that's right, the Battle of Gettysburg. Does anyone feel, else feel like this is a Jeopardy game going on, right? Alex, I'll take historical reenactments for 600. What is Gettysburg, right? In addition to the battle's events themselves, you can actually, during this, during this time, if you go to Gettysburg, you can hear Abraham Lincoln recite the Gettysburg Address, which, of course, is inscribed where? What is the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C.? Did anyone have to memorize the, uh, the, the uh, Lincoln, the uh, Gettysburg Address in school? Anybody? Oh, that's interesting. You did, but you forgot. Yeah, I'm not asking you to recite it. I just wanted to be curious if you were asked to remember it. Why, why was that? Why, why in the world would your teachers make you memorize the Gettysburg Address? Perhaps it was simply to torture the students, right? That was for sure one of the reasons. But there was another reason. 
Listen to this. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That much we remember. That's the opening line, right? It's a very short address, by the way. But there's another line I want to read to you this morning. Lincoln, referring to the brave Union soldiers who lost their lives in, at Gettysburg, he states of them, he says, the world, this is a famous line, the world will what? Little note, nor long remember what we say here. But it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far, thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us. And what is that great task? That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. So gang, why the reenactment? And why bother? What's the point? Why relive the battle? Why recite Lincoln's address? Listen to this. This is, gets to the very heart of what we're going to talk about this morning as we talk about the Passover and then celebrate the Passover meal. We recite these things, we relive them, we reenact them. Why? So history can have a hold on our hearts. Let me say that again. So that history can have a hold on our hearts. There's something so significant about General Washington with all his troops, with the morale just in, just in the can. Loss after loss after loss, the risk at night. Icy cold river. What can we make this happen? We need this. This pivotal moment needs to be remembered. There at Gettysburg, 50,000 lives lost in three days. Isn't that amazing? It's just incredible. I can't begin to begin to, to relate to that. And I don't know about you, but I myself tend to make fun of some of the reenactment things, etc. But at the heart of it is something really profound, again, that so easily we lose sight of the past and we don't allow history to have the hold on our hearts. And this morning, more importantly than a history lesson, the real lesson I want you to hear is what? We relive the story of the Passover. We relive the story of of the Last Supper, the night of his betrayal. Why? So that his story can have a hold on our hearts. Are you with me? Now, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But let me ask you, how many of you have lost loved ones and on occasion you visit their grave? Why do we do that? Or you may visit places you went with your loved ones. You may go there, maybe a restaurant, maybe it's a, uh, a certain getaway. You, you go and you revisit there. You, why, why do we do that? For, well, I'm sure there are a number of reasons, but, but we often, we, we want to remember them, right? Very rightly, we want to relive or reenact some aspect of our relationship. Why? 
to not let it die. I once sat with a woman who had lost her father four or five years previously. She had been very, very close to her dad. He was sort of the rock of her life. And she said, these last five years, I've grieved my father's passing. And now I feel like in addition to that, or maybe instead of that, I'm grieving not only the loss of my dad, but the loss of my ability to remember my dad. I told the story before about telling again about a busy Air Force mom who was at the grocery store and she was with her toddler who was eating the, her grocery list. And she was late to pick up the kids and she whirled around one aisle into the next and she almost ran over an old man. She wanted to blurt out, excuse me, to get around him when she noticed that there was a tear in his eye. Full stop. Excuse me, can I, can I help you with something? He hesitated and then told the woman that he was looking for a bar of soap. Anyone in particular? The woman asked. Well, I'm trying to find my wife's brand of soap. The woman started to loan him her cell phone when he said, she died a year ago, and I just want to smell her again. Suddenly the woman's half-eaten grocery list didn't seem so important. Picking up the kids on time didn't seem so important. See, that's a profound, that's a profound moment, isn't it? When this, you, you encounter someone who's trying to relive, trying to reconnect. And what does it do? As she enters into that moment of reenactment, into that moment of reliving, she herself is transformed, isn't she? Suddenly her priorities aren't the same anymore. What she thought was so important really wasn't that important. There was something more sacred, more beautiful, more precious that life was about. And she writes, I spent the remainder of my time at the store there listening to a man tell the story of how important his wife was to him, how she took care of their children while he served our country, a retired, decorated World War II pilot who flew over 50 missions to protect Americans, still needed the protection of a woman who served him at home. After Nicholas Wolterstorff, who was a Princeton or Yale professor, uh, he lost his 25-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident. And in his grief, he would at times write his thoughts down. It's actually a, a wonderful thing to do when you're in the midst of grieving, just occasionally write thoughts down. And he later collected those thoughts in a book called A Lament for His Son. He writes, listen to what he says. He says, it was late that night. <laughs> it was late that night when I returned home, but I assembled the family together. I, rem I remember only what I said first and what I said last. I began, our Eric is gone. Can you imagine that? Your son's overseas in Europe, having the time of his life, mountain climbing, and then tragedy strikes. No goodbyes. No, no last final words, nothing. It's just, just gone. Our Eric is gone, I said. And at the end, at the end of, of the night, 
I said that we must now learn to live as faithfully and as authentically with Eric gone as we had tried to do with Eric present. But how, how are we to do that and what does it mean? It will take time to learn. But this I know, it means not forgetting him. It means speaking of him. It means remembering him. Remembering. He continues, one of the profoundest features of the Christian and Jewish way of being in the world and being in history is remembering. Remember, said Moses. Do not forget, said the Psalms. Do this in remembrance of me. We are to hold the past, and continuing to quote uh, Wolterstorff, we are to hold the past in remembrance and not let it slide away. For in history, in history, we find God. If Eric's life was a gift, surely we are to hold it in remembrance, to resist amnesia, to resist oblivion. He continues, all around us are his things, his clothes, his books, his camera, the things he made, the things he made, pots, drawings, slides, photos, notes, and papers. They speak with forked tongue, with words of joyful pride, but also words of sorrow. Do we put them all behind doors to muffle the sorrow or leave them out to hear them tell of the hands that shaped them? We shall leave them out. We will not store the pots. We will not turn the photos. We will put them where they confront us. This as a remembrance, as a memorial. To be, to be human is to remember, to carry the past along into the present. Even more, to be human is to look ahead, to expect, to envision. To be human is to expect while remembering, to expect, while remembering, to plan while recollecting. Did you get that? Let me say it again. One of the profoundest features of the Christian and Jewish way of being in the world and being in history is remembering. To be human is to expect while remembering to plan while recollecting. My older brother used to uh, keep uh, a, a uh, diary when he was in junior high, senior high. And I always thought that was kind of dumb. Like, I thought diaries were all just dumb. What do I keep a diary for? I mean, what a waste of time. You know, this is happening to your diary. And I can remember a time, actually, years, this is years ago, but it was when we were both older that he took out his diary from junior high and high school. And he just read it. And it was comical. It was so great. Mom's always cleaning the carpets. When's she going to stop? She wants to buy new carpets. What about money for me to go to college? And it was just, I mean, it was just wonderful. Just kind of this firstborn fears and worries, frustrations. And we howled. We laughed. We remembered. Cause, and it brought back some of the most what's more of a powerful, most, uh, the strongest memories that I just have in my childhood. I wish we'd had, I wish I'd done it. I wish I'd had a diary where I could go back and remember what, even the simple little things like that. It was nothing profound. It was nothing earth-shaking, but it was home. 
It was family. It was the silliness of the perspectives of youth, the fears about the future. That was us. It was Brian, my older brother, and me shared a room in a bunk bed in the mid-80s. We were together. And so it is that this climactic, almost climactic event in Exodus, that we find something profound. Let's turn there. I'm going to read this. I'm going to, just like last week, I'm going to read a little bit more than usual, but I hope that it captures your attention. This is the story of stories. Okay, now what I want you to see, this is so important, that in chapters, uh, chapter 12, we're going to read 11 and 12 together, right? This is on page 56 of your pew Bible. If you want to follow along or not, you can just close it and simply listen to the story. But I want you to see the brilliant way. Now listen, this is so unique, so unique to ancient Near Eastern law. There's nothing like it, okay? You find this amazing interweaving, this intermingling, this twisting together of story and statute. Are you with me? That as Moses is going to tell the story of the Passover, he's going to give the statute of the Passover. Does that make sense? And that these two together, so that when you, so that when later generations reenact the Passover, what? They enter into it. That statute enables them to actually live the story. And story and statute reinforce one another. And it has a staying power that is just tremendous. I mean, the Chinese culture, uh, or I say cultures really, because they're not just one, is one of the most ancient cultures that we know of, civilizations. They're actually different cultures, and they actually interwine and interweave. The Jewish culture is probably the oldest, uh, just continuing, uh, same culture throughout human history. And the reason for it is exactly this amazing intertwining, interweaving of story and statute because it creates a deep and profound sense of identity, of this is who we are. So you got that? So I want to read the story. So we've been reading the story. It's just been a straightforward telling. But then suddenly, for the first time, we're going to have this interweaving. It won't be for the last time. The rest of the Pentateuch is this really, to us, sort of bizarre or just random intertwining, interweaving of story and statute. The more you believe the story, the more you'll obey the statute. The more you practice the statute, the more real the story will become. They are mutually reinforcing. As I read this text, I want you to ask two questions. There's so much in this. In fact, chapter, chapter 12, I make, when I teach Old Testament survey, I make this, my students their first major paper assignment is the Passover, is the Exodus 12. I want you to go all walk, walk through the whole thing and tear it apart, get into the details of it because it's so amazing from a historical and theological perspective. So there's so much here, but I wanna, I'm going to focus on two things. It won't take long. Two things this morning. First, I want you to ask, as I read the story, ask why a lamb's death? Why does this Passover lamb have to die? It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. I mean, who are the perpetrators in this story so far? Pharaoh, his servants, and the rest of the Egyptians. So what have the Israelites done wrong? Why did they need the blood of the lamb? Second question, why the laborious details? So first, why the lamb's death? And second, there's a lot of details in here. 
You go to, you, we celebrate the Passover. You got to wear certain things. You got to stand a certain way. You gotta, you gotta, there's all these. You got to prepare the food. And so why all the details? Let's read the text together. Hear now the word of the Lord, taken from Exodus chapter 11 and 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said, said to Moses, now just me, I'm sorry, let me, I'm sorry, I should preface this. Now, from last week, Moses and Pharaoh, Moses was in the presence of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh had just said, listen, you're ne- if you ever come again in here, what? I, I'm, I'm going to kill you. Right? And then Moses said, listen, this is the last time you'll ever see me. <laughs> right? And he has the last word. Okay? Now, this chapter 11 is that last word. You have this sort of flashback where Yahweh talks to Moses, etc. But Moses is going to say something to Pharaoh, and this is it. Now, the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. That's going to be really important for later in the story, so don't forget that. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Isn't that fascinating? So Moses said, this is what the Lord says About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. And Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, statute, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be your old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. When they, th- then they are to take them 
takes, or excuse me, then they either take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over a fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your household. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly. And another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you are, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you should go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframes and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. <coughs> Excuse me. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was, on, who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, and as you have said, go. And also, bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth there were, there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought, had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast, because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of the time the Israelites... People lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end, <clears throat> excuse me, at the, at the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have, have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover, must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. The word of the Lord. Now, there's so much here, but I want to ask two questions. Again, why a lamb's death? Think of just the incredible cultural, legal, social Grand Canyon that existed between the Egyptians and the Israelites. The Egyptians were a civilization that was I mean, already hundreds, thousands of years old, at least two to three thousand years old. Incredible. It was the, it was, it was the uh, what's the word, the greatest civilization of that era. It was a noble, 
highly advanced people. Israelites were property. Aside from some small patriarchal history, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had been slaves. They had a high point with Joseph. They were nobodies. One was the oppressor. The other was the oppressed. Why is it that really at the center of the Passover, and at the center of the, of the Passover uh, ritual is a meal about a one-year-old male lamb without defect? What did the Israelites do wrong? It's, I think, a profound question. For all the difference, for all the difference, culturally, socially, legally, historically, in this departure, God wanted to tell the Israelites one thing. You have more in common with your oppressors than you will ever realize. They are not the only ones under judgment. That in some very real sense, you are part of this Egyptian world system. This Egyptian, what would you call it, structure. You belong to it, even as those who are at the bottom, even as those who are the oppressed, you are not innocent. You have more in common with your oppressors than you do different. And wow, will the rest of the, of the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament prove that right. At the very heart of the Passover, listen to this gang, the very heart of the Passover is this message that says, you are no different. You are no better. Why are you the oppressed and not the oppressor? Why are you the ones being delivered and not judged? What makes you any different? What makes you so special? What do you have that they didn't? And the answer is, a lamb. An innocent Lamb, a one-year-old male without defect. What's, what's that? What's defect? What's, what's the idea? Without defect. Without error. Blameless. What did the lamb do wrong? Nothing. But it's this lamb and its blood that rescues, that delivers that somehow turns away, and it's mysterious, I don't know the mechanics of it, I really don't, that somehow the blood turns away the destroyer, that there might be deliverance, that there might be life, that there might be rescue. So why a lamb's death? Because the Israelites were under the same judgment as the Egyptians. If you can get up every day and look out at the world, see the, everything on the news, all the people who you think are just as lost and as dumb and as crazy and as whatever, the people that you just don't like and you know they don't like you, and say, you know what? For all our differences, we have a lot in common. In fact, far more than different. Second question, why the laborious details? 
right? As we're reading through, like, man, there's all, I mean, it's just, is he just sort of a micromanager? I mean, well, why, why is God so, why does he care so much about all these details? I'm not going to explain all of them, but I am going to take just a few minutes here to whet your appetite to explain a few of them, okay? Because I think they're beautiful. Turn to chapter 12, verse 1. I love this. Look at this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. At the heart of the Passover meal is a new beginning, a new way of thinking about time. This is day one. This is ground zero of a new nation, a new life, a new way of being in the world. You don't mark time by the reign of the Pharaoh. You don't mark time by anything else. This is your zero. This is the beginning of the birth of a nation. So the Passover wonderfully reminds them that it was then in the Exodus story, in their deliverance, that there was a new beginning. Look in verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. Verse 5, the animal you choose must be one-year-old male without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of, of, of Israel must slaughter, slaughter them at twilight. Let me highlight just a few things here. First, <clears throat> slaughter on the 14th day. Between, literally, it's between two evenings, or just in verse 6, slaughter, slaughter them at twilight. Why at twilight? Well, if you're a slave, or if you're uh, you know, a lowly hired hand, what are you doing all day? You're working. You're working. And so it's reserved that everyone, rich and poor, regardless of their class, are to slaughter this at a time when they would actually be free. Right? So there's this provision for who? The lowest, the least. That you offer this meal. You, you slaughter the, the lamb when? When everyone is available. Isn't that beautiful? Just a very, very simple idea. Um, notice here on the verse 7, it says the blood on the door frames uh, probably, then, again, are there to purify. They're there to deflect and, and to, 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 to redirect the, the, wrath, uh, the wrath of the uh, destroyer elsewhere. Look in verses 8 through 11. I won't read it, but just notice a few of the details. How are they to eat this Passover meal? First, roasted over fire. That's the fastest. It's the easiest way to cook meat. So notice this emphasis when it sees again and again here. It's an emphasis on what? Speed. Later, later just as of note, I mentioned this, if you remember from verse, in chapter 12, verse 46, it actually says that you're not to break the bones of the lamb. Why would that be? Well, it's actually one of the details of the story that people scratch their heads over. They're not sure about it. Just don't break the bones. And of course, if you've ever read the book of John, what do you know? As the soldiers came to the three men who'd been crucified. Crucifixion takes a long time. You usually die over a period of two, three days. You eventually suffocate. And the reason why is you're trying, you're trying to stand the whole time. If you can stand up, you can breathe easier. 
And so what the soldiers would often do to, to, to make them die faster is they would do what? They would break their legs so they couldn't stand. So they went to the first guy. What did they do? Break his legs. Went to the second guy, broke his legs. Came to Jesus. He was already dead. No broken bones. Think about that. For over a thousand years, the mystery of the detail. Why, Dad, why no broken bones? I don't know. Just don't break them. <laughs> right? But there's this subtle detail in John's gospel that, wow, it clicks, doesn't it? This is the Passover lamb. Well, how else are they supposed to eat it? Roasted over a fire, no broken bones, with bitter herbs. Why? Bitter herbs are easy to find. They're very accessible to the poorest of the poor. But more importantly, what was life like in Egypt? It was bitter. You think, well, that's duh, you know, that's slavery. No, because you go read the rest of the Pentateuch and what the Israelites constantly wanting to do. Get back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. I got an idea. Let's go back to Egypt. Right? And they actually have a reminder in the Passover. Go, these are bitter, man. Right? Why? Why? Because they forgot how what life was like in Egypt. Eat it, roast it over the fire, no broken bones with bitter herbs, bread without yeast. Of course, I hope you got that from the story. Why do we bread without yeast? Because they didn't have time. They're on their way out. They had to leave. There was a sense of haste. And that adds to the, the final component there of, be, of eat it with your cloak tucked in, your sandals on, your staff in hand. That is the eat it in haste. Don't stick around Egypt. Don't stick around this way of living, this civilization, this culture, with all its values, with all its enticements, with all its oppression. Don't stick around. Run. Flee. Get away. There's a sense of urgency that calls you out of your old life, out of the old way of, of all its values, all its priorities, all the things that it's about. It says run, go, don't compromise, don't linger, get out. It is a meal that reminds people of the darkness, the death that they left. And now what? Their life is what? It's a journey. You, Christian, are a pilgrim. This earth, in all its old worldly system of values, is not your home. It's not. And we're going to retake it someday. Don't get me wrong. We're going to go off to heaven you know, be, play with harps. We're going to retake the earth. But understand, in its, present, in its present circumstance, this world is not your home. All its praise of education, of athletics, all its praise of accomplishment, right? All your resumes, all this garbage, it's just, it's just, it is death. It is so deceptive. So again, let me ask the question, why a lamb? Why a lamb? Because... It is so crucial. The thing the Israelites must remember is that they are more like the Egyptians than they are different. They are part of that world system. They were deserving of wrath. Oh, to get up every morning to look in the mirror and say, why did God choose me? Who am I? That the Lord would have mercy on me. He would have grace. I mean, why would he send his spirit to regenerate my heart? To give me eyes that begin to see, ears that are beginning to hear. Why would he do that? I've won the lottery. To remember that I am no different from those around me. Why alarms death? Secondly, why the laborious details? Because they're beautiful. There's so much meaning. There's so much intricacy. There's so much symbolism. 
It's just beautiful. And as we turn to this meal, this meal is much simpler, isn't it? In fact, as a kid, I remember thinking, man, this is so anticlimactic. Couldn't God do better? Throw some steak in, right? Some salmon, you know what I mean? Let's let's, let's party. I mean, let's like make this good. Throw some, you know, some just, just really make it a big deal. And of course he doesn't. Why? Because the majority of the world, where the majority of history, didn't have steak or salmon. They weren't some privileged white boy in Montana, right? This is the simple meal of bread and wine because it was fulfilled by a carpenter, a peasant who changed the world forever. One whose blood gives us deliverance from death. One of the things I want you to remember, I'll close with this. One of the things I write as we transition to the Lord's Supper, one of the things I want you to remember here, people will often object to the Passover because God is so angry. And I just want you to read chapters 11 and 12. In fact, read all through these verses of, 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 the, of, the, um, of the, the plagues and, and actually revel in God's anger. When God sees all the injustice in this world, all the oppression, all the unfairness, all the evil, he is not apathetic. Amen? It's not like, hey, I don't, no big deal to me. I'm just going to be tolerant. You know, just, just look the other way. And it was, you know, whatever. He is angry. He's moved. Why? Because people who have worth and value are being mistreated. And he loves them and he cares about them. And he's going to act. He is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet, I do not leave the guilty unpunished. In time, in his perfect timing, in his perfect wisdom, he will come again and pass over this world with his destroying angels. Almost every time the angels mention the New Testament, by the way, they're destroying angels. They're not playing harps. And they are terrifying creatures. He will come and he will harvest the earth. And on that day, it will be just. It will be long overdue when he will right all of the wrongs, when those who have gone without punishment will one day receive it perfectly, not too much, not too little, in exactly the right amount. And my question to you is this. Will you be covered in the blood of the Lamb? We will be one who is clothed as a pilgrim. This is not my home. We'll be one who has said, I am different. I will stand out. I will not partake of what the world partakes. I will eat bread in a different way. I will not be part of the corruption. I will live my life according to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, this is a meal that celebrates the blood of the lamb. His body, his body broken for us on a cross. His blood shed for us that we might be purified, cleansed of all unrighteousness. Let us, close, let us, let us begin our meal with prayer.